Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. How's it going, everybody? Hope you're having a great day. Quick favor, if after listening to and or watching the video you find you enjoyed it or learned something, please hit the like button and consider subscribing. Now, let's dig in. I haven't chatted for some time about alleged killer Brian Koberger, and I finally have some new info to share about him. So here we go. It's been reported this morning that court documents filed by Koberger's defense team on Wednesday show that they have presented an affidavit from a genetic genealogy expert from California in support of a previous motion regarding the disclosure of materials related to the biological testing in this case. That would be the DNA testing. The documents say that granting Dr. Leah Larkin access to the data and methods used to identify Koberger as the perpetrator will allow his defense team to, one, check to see if investigators complied with Department of Justice policies, two, see how a DNA sample was handled from the time it was collected through its forensic genetic genealogy testing, three, to see if there was a use of loopholes and violations of the terms of service to the various genetic genealogy databases that the DNA was submitted to. Defense also wants to review the process of what's known as a single nucleotide polymorphisms profile creation, the use of the profile. So what I think all that means is the defense wants to know how the touch DNA that was found on the leather sheath on victim Madison Mogan's bed was handled. Was it properly handled and processed according to Idaho law? Was it at any time not in the custody of law enforcement? And did the investigators violate the privacy policies of the genetic genealogy databases that they used to build a family tree around that DNA profile? The defense needs access to all this information, or at least they're saying that they do, so that they can have their expert look at all this stuff and try to find holes where it could be shown maybe that the evidence wasn't handled correctly, that the laboratory that processed it has a lot of problems, that Mr. Koberger's rights under the Constitution were violated, and that DNA was entered into those genealogy databases. We have to remember that the burden of proving Koberger guilty is 100% on the prosecution. The defense does not have to prove that Koberger is innocent. All they have to do is show that there's reasonable doubt as to his guilt. So we can see from all of this how the defense team is going to try and create reasonable doubt. This is all part of the dance between the prosecutors and the defense as they work their way toward a trial. Moving on to some new information about Brian Koberger's behavior while teaching and studying at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Two fellow graduate students of Koberger's at WSU recently spoke with ABC News under the condition of anonymity, and what they shared, if true, adds more color to the portrait we have of Koberger while he was a student and a teaching assistant 
at the university. One of these students claims that Koberger treated female professors with disrespect and made one female classmate uncomfortable by asking her out repeatedly. I'm assuming she, in turn, repeatedly said, uh, no thank you. The other student who spoke to ABC News was in the same criminology program as Koberger, and this person claims that he lacked respect for people's boundaries. The student also described Koberger developing a crush on a female in the program. I'm assuming she's the same one we just talked about, and he kept staring at her. This person said that Koberger's treatment of this woman led the other students to make a point to never leave her alone with him. You get the feeling that Koberger, just like it's been alleged he did in middle and high school, didn't accept the female's rejection. Now that same grad student also told ABC News that Brian was sometimes, quote, rude and condescending and capable of becoming angry over seemingly minor issues like being docked a point or two in class. And listen to this. This person stated, Koberger's face would turn bright red and he clenched his fists until his knuckles were white, end quote. What the fuck? Who acts like that in grad school, especially when you're a teaching assistant? It sounds like if all this is true, Koberger was slowly imploding the whole time he was at WSU, perhaps losing his ability to hide his dark secret self. I'm reminded of the spoiled brat character of Veruca Salt in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory who screams, Daddy, I want a squirrel. Get me one of those squirrels. I want one. Maybe this explains why Koberger's hands always seem to look red in photos. Perhaps he's always clenching those fists when he's angry or stressed. I'm a tightly wound person. and People often have to remind me to loosen up. I've awakened many nights to find my fists clenched. Criminal profilers said early on, that whoever committed this crime in Moscow, Idaho, is likely living a very regimented lifestyle. There's speculation here, but I bet Koberger suffers from jaw pain, from clenching, and I bet he sleeps with a mouth guard. Curious minds want to know. Can you imagine him sleeping in his cell with his little mouth guard in? Random thought. Do you think incarcerated people with sleep apnea get to have their breathing machines with them in prison? I need to research that. Back to the topic. One of these students from WSU claims that Koberger's fellow PhD students began tracking those of Koberger's behaviors that bothered them, especially when they saw his disrespect for female professors. Among the other behaviors they secretly monitored were how many times Koberger interrupted his female professors and skipped their classes. The ABC News reporter said that the student's decision to keep track of Koberger's behavior could pay off for prosecutors in an upcoming trial, and that's because the students jotted down that he didn't attend class on Monday, November 14, 2022. That would have been the first day of class after the murders in Moscow, Idaho. So let's ponder this for a moment. The four students were harmed in the early morning hours of Sunday, November 13th, starting around 4.08 a.m. The savage, frenzied attack continued until around 4.20 a.m. Later that same Sunday morning, cellular data for Koberger's phone shows that it traveled back to his apartment in Pullman, Washington, around 5.30 a.m. 
So let's assume for a second that he really is the perpetrator of the crime. If so, it would appear that it took him about an hour and 10 minutes to get back home. The phone stays in Pullman from 5.30 a.m. until around 9 a.m. It then travels to Moscow, Idaho, hangs out near the student's home from about 9.12 a.m. until 9.21 a.m. Then the phone goes back to Pullman, Washington, and arrives there at 9.32 a.m. The phone stays there until it uses cell towers consistent with the phone traveling from Pullman to Lewiston, Idaho, via U.S. Highway 195. At 12.36 p.m., the phone was using a cell tower near Clarkston, Washington. Clarkston, remember, is a 43-minute drive away from Pullman. Cameras then captured Brian Koberger walking into and through an Albertson's grocery store in Clarkston. He was seen exiting the store at 1.04 p.m. Then other cellular data indicated that Koberger's phone was in Johnson, Idaho at 5.36 p.m. The phone then stopped reporting to the network from 5.36 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. All of this went down on the same day the crime was committed. If Koberger is the perpetrator, then he didn't get much sleep that Sunday. It would make sense if he was absolutely exhausted by Monday morning that he didn't feel able to go to class. Even the most energetic person drinking a Red Bull would finally poop out after all that and say, oh heck no. I can't go to class today. There might be other reasons why he didn't go to class as well. Okay, switching topics again. Now I want to tell you what criminal attorney Sarah Azari said about Koberger's rather bizarre alibi. She was interviewed by Brian Enton for News Nation. This is worthy of sharing in my opinion because Azari illustrates why Koberger's lead attorney Ann Taylor likely went with such an alibi for her client. The alibi was basically that Koberger has a habit of driving alone in his white Elantra late at night and in the early morning hours, and that that's what he was doing when the crime in Moscow, Idaho occurred. So Enton told Azari that he expected a more in-depth alibi to come from Team Koberger at this point. Azari responded, quote, I'm sorry you're disappointed, but look, Ann Taylor is all business. She is no games here. I think we are used to seeing an alibi in the traditional sense where it is, I was here at this time and these are the people who can corroborate it. God, I hate that word, corroborate. This is not what she is doing. What stood out to me is that there is this new information and we know that she is saying he was alone. Translation, there is nobody that can corroborate where he was, what he was doing at this time, and that he was driving around. That's key because should those cell pings, the movement of the car, the data from the phone, in fact check out and be reliable forensic evidence, then he doesn't have to deny it was him driving and that there's insufficient evidence to place me in this party house and put a knife in my hand, end quote. But another well-known attorney, Niema Romani, told the Daily Mail that Koberger's alibi is not a, quote, real alibi defense because it offers no new evidence to support his claim. Romani said, quote, it's not a real alibi defense. It's more sort of cross-examining the government's witnesses and arguing by inference that because Koberger's phone wasn't there, 
Berger wasn't there either, end quote. So that's all for today on the Idaho student murders case. May Ethan, Madison, Kaylee, and Zana never be forgotten, and may justice be served. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, please smash that like button.